1972, Francis Schaeffer published a short book, He Is There and He Is Not Silent. Schaeffer wrestles through life's biggest questions, questions about existence and first causes, questions about morality, the source of right and wrong, questions about how we know something and know that we know. And with each chapter, Schaefer demonstrates that if we're honest about the way things are, and if we're logically consistent and not logical only when it's convenient to us, then we can't help but admit that the infinite personal God exists and that this God has made himself known in creation and in the Bible. He is there, and he is not silent. Schaefer's answer aligns with the testimony of Hebrews. Hebrews begins with the God who speaks. The Creator communicates with His creatures. God speaks through the created order. The nature and beauty of the things God made proclaim His glories. But the focus of Hebrews is how God speaks in the Scriptures and in the Son who fulfills the Scriptures. And before we get too specific, uh, let's talk more about Hebrews in general. What is it? Why is it written? Hebrews is like other letters. It explains the Scriptures in light of Jesus' coming. It it ends like other letters with a blessing and and a final greeting. But unlike other letters, we don't know who wrote it. Proposals have included Paul, Apollos, or Luke. But in the end, all we know is what he says in chapter 2, verse 3, that it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And so whoever the author may be, his message stems from the testimony of the eyewitnesses and apostles authorized by Jesus. Another difference is that Hebrews reads more like a sermon. Uh, than how we characterize most letters. Uh, the author calls it a word of exhortation in, uh, in chapter 13, verse 22. And that phrase also appears in Acts 13, where, where we have Paul, he goes into the synagogue with, with a bunch of his buddies, and, 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 and the, the rulers send them a message saying, Brothers, if you have a word of encouragement for us, please share. And Paul gets up in Acts 13 and gives a bit of a sermon uh, uh, of sorts. He, he reasons with them from, from the Scriptures. And that's how Hebrews reads. It, it, it reads just like a, a sermon or a homily presented in a Jewish synagogue. The audience, however, are already Christians. Okay, More specifically, Hebrews exhorts... Christians who were well-versed in the law and the customs under the Old Covenant. They they knew the priesthood and the the sacrificial system. But through the preaching of the gospel, God saved saved them. And, And as time passed, though, a looming danger presents itself. They're wavering in their commitment to Jesus. And some are on the verge of apostasy. Now, part of that is due to what we might call internal passivity. 
they're drifting away. They're neglecting their salvation. Uh, Chapter 6 says that they've become dull of hearing. In chapter 10, we see that some have, have stopped gathering with the church. The other part is due to what we might call external persecution. Okay, enemies are doing terrible things to persuade them to forsake Jesus. In chapter 10 and 13, we see that there's been public verbal abuse, there's been imprisonment, the plundering of their property. So you have this internal passivity with this external persecution, and it wouldn't be surprising if the two were related. I mean, you can imagine a Jewish Christian thinking, you know, why the need to keep suffering so much? I mean, wouldn't it be easier just to return to our old ways in Judaism? I mean, the Jews would leave us alone. Rome would get off our back. We'd be a recognized religion again. Besides, didn't God speak to us in the Old Covenant as well? I mean, wasn't, wasn't God's Old Covenant His Word too? So why bother with this anymore? And Hebrews exist to address that problem. To exhort the church, don't let go of Jesus. To do so would be to abandon your salvation. That's why God wrote this book. I get lots of good questions as a pastor. Theological ethical, political. But the questions I answer most have to do with the saint's perseverance. How am I going to make it to the end? Why is that? Because we feel the same pressures inside and outside. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We feel that in our sinful flesh. We feel that when life sucks and things are hard. We hear the world's objections and we feel like life would be just a whole lot easier if I weren't a Christian anymore. And Hebrews meets us right there. But do you know how it addresses the problem? By magnifying the greatness of Jesus. When you look at a star, you see but a teeny tiny speck in the sky. But put a telescope on it, and all of a sudden that star is far more glorious than you thought. It's a million times bigger than the earth. Hebrews is like a telescope on Jesus. His person, His creative power, His cross, His crown, His covenant, His kingdom. They're all way, way, way greater than everything. What keeps you laying hold of Jesus is seeing Jesus as He really is in all His manifold glory. That's how Hebrews keeps the saints persevering. 
Once you see him truly, the superior prophet, the superior sacrifice, the superior priest, the superior king, the superior covenant, you won't want to let him go. That's how Hebrews addresses our perseverance. Now with that said, let's let's get into it. And I'll start in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is a rich paragraph. It's actually one sentence in the Greek, and that sentence has two main parts. Okay, the first has to do with God's final decisive revelation in the Son, and then the rest tells why the Son is uniquely qualified to be this final revelation. So let's begin with the first part, God's final decisive revelation in the Son. Now notice notice the key verbs in verses 1 to 2, God spoke and He has Spoken. God is not silent. Right? He, he communicates. Some of what He communicates comes generally through the created order. Romans 1 says that His eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived in the things that He has made. But that revelation has limits. By observing the created order, we can know that we're accountable to God. But we can't know fully who that God is or how that God saves, or really what His purposes are. In order for us to understand those things, God must reveal them in a further special way. And Hebrews 1 asserts that God has done just that, by the prophets and by a son. But in this contrast that he's making, there's a progression in the way that he The way that he does this revelation by the prophets and by the Son. Notice first the the contrast in time. Long ago, referring to the days of our fathers, that that history that's covered on the pages of, of your Old Testament, right? He contrasts that with in these last days. And in the New Testament, we know that the last days extend from Jesus' first coming to Jesus' second coming. In other words, a decisive shift has occurred in the drama of God's saving plan. Jesus basically kicks it into overdrive. And you ladies saw this in Mark this past uh, week when Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come upon them. But with this shift comes God's fuller and final revelation in the Son. Notice the other contrast implied. When God spoke long ago, He did so, the ESV says, 
at many times and in many ways. Or better, in many parts and many ways. God revealed His plan in a a fragmentary way that was kind of spread out here and there over time. It came in, in bits and pieces by various types and shadows and events and promises, many of which He recalls later in the book of Hebrews. So it may seem at first you see this many parts, many ways. It may seem unclear. What do you mean by that? But just read the letter and you know exactly what he means. Because he's pulling from David's Psalms and Moses' faithfulness and Joshua's rest and Melchizedek's office and the priestly sacrifices. And he's picking up all these pieces by which God spoke in the Old Testament. And then he's pulling them together to show how the person and work of Jesus brings those types and shadows to their fruition. Why doesn't he repeat that God has spoken by his Son in many parts and many ways? Because in the Son, God has given his ultimate word, his final word, his decisive word that can progress no further. It progresses up to Jesus and reaches its fulfillment. Nothing more needs to be said for us living between Jesus' first and second coming. God said it all when He sent His Son Of course, we'll receive further revelation when Jesus returns. And that day will be glorious. No longer will we see through a glass dimly. We will see Him face to face. But until then, God has given us His final decisive word in Jesus. That doesn't mean we unhitch the Old Testament from our Christianity. Hebrews will teach that God still speaks, present tense. He still speaks to the church by the Old Testament. And He speaks, and He, he speaks the Old Testament, he, he, he outlines where God speaks and how God speaks in the Old Testament to the church so that they can see Jesus clearly and know Jesus. The Old Testament still speaks present tense about Jesus. It's just that Jesus now embodies the promises. In Jesus, the shadows become reality. The mysteries become revealed. The types reach their fulfillment. And no prophet could ever claim that role for himself. Something else the prophets couldn't do? Not a single one could boast in being God's unique son. And that's where he goes next. You get these seven remarks that describe the greatness of this particular son. 
They reveal why the Son is uniquely qualified to be God's final word. And by the time you reach verse 4, this Son isn't just one among other sons. He's in a class all by himself. He's not just another prophet in a long line of, of, of other prophets, nor is he some kind of angelic heavenly being. This Son is much, much more. Number one, the Son is the heir of all things. The Son is the heir of all things. This is verse 2. God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Now, very likely, Psalm 2, verse 8, stands in the background here. He will soon quote from Psalm 2, verse 7, down in verse 5. And He does this to explain Jesus' Sonship. But God says this in Psalm 2.8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. He's talking to the Son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, in one sense, the Son inherited the nations upon completing His work as a man on earth. Okay? The point here, though, seems to be that God the Father appointed him heir even before that happened. He was heir by virtue of being son of the Father. To be son is to be the heir. And if your father owns all things, guess what you own? All things. The nations, the earth, the heavens, angelic forces, everything that's not God belongs to Jesus by virtue of Him being Son. And chapter 2 will explain that even the world to come belongs to Jesus already. Number 2, the Son created the world. He created the world. End of verse 2. Through whom God also, uh, through whom also God created the world. That assumes the Son's pre-existence, doesn't it? it? The Son already existed with the Father before creation. The Father created the world through the Son. Someone might say, hmm. It says, through whom? Maybe the Son pre-existed the world, but that doesn't necessarily mean that He's God. Real thought in church history. That would be a wrong inference to make here. Uh, consider John 1.3 alongside Hebrews 1. John writes, All things were made through Him. That's what Hebrews said. And then John adds this, And without Him was not anything made that was Made. So you've got two basic categories of existence here. There's the anything that was made category, and then there's God. Which category does the Son fit into? Not the anything made category. Because He made it all. He fits into the God category. At the same time, John and Hebrews maintain the Son's personal distinction from the Father. 
as God the Father creates, as God the Son creates, but He creates as Son to the Father. Returning to Hebrews 1, it's, it's interesting that the Son, being heir of all things, precedes the Son creating all things in the text here. And it suggests that He created the world to inherit it. How can you inherit something you already own by virtue of being its creator? The Father created the universe through the Son for the Son to inherit it all as a man. The plan, in other words, was set from the get-go. As Colossians 1 says, all things were created through Him, through Him, through the Son, and for Him. Why does the universe exist to begin with? It exists to belong to Jesus, the God-man. Number three, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. That's verse three. The radiance of God's glory. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.16 that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. 1 Timothy 1.17 says that God is invisible. But we also have these repeated testimonies in Scripture where people encounter God. What are they witnessing? The glory of God. God's glory is the, the weighty display of the intrinsic worth and goodness of the invisible God. His glory is when His intrinsic worth goes public. And here we see the sun is the radiance of that glory. Meaning to witness the sun is to witness God's glorious worth. When you look at the sun in the sky, right, you can't actually see it with your naked eye. But you can see its glory, its radiance. But when you see it, you say, hey, that's the sun. Right? The analogy doesn't do full justice here, but, but that's similar to what Hebrews is saying. When you see the sun, you say, hey, that's God's glory. I can see God when I look at the sun. His intrinsic worth and beauty and goodness, I can see it all revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ. He tells the whole story. The Son is also the exact imprint of God's nature or essence, God's being. This imagery involves that of stamping out coins, 
Okay, we went to the Bureau of Engraving and Printing uh, a month ago. He had these giant printers with these engraved plates uh, all over, all over uh, these big wheels in, in there. And these pra- plates were just smashing Ben Franklin's face into the $100 bills, you know, just boom, boom, boom. Exact imprints. And so you had the plate and you had the stamp that revealed what, was about, what the plate was about, right? And that's what the sun does when it comes to the very essence of God. To see the sun is to see God in His very essence. And hence the church's early confession that Jesus is God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Number four, the Son upholds the universe by His powerful Word. That's further, that's further into verse three. Not only does He create the universe, He sustains the universe moment by moment. Everything that exists, visible, invisible, supernovas, subatomic particles, angels, the pew you're sitting in, the eardrum with which you're hearing my voice, you name it, the Son upholds it by His powerful Word. And if he ceased doing so, the universe would cease to exist. That's power. That's a quality that belongs only to the God of the universe, and it's applied here to the Son. And so he's the heir. He created the world for it to become his inheritance as a man. If he sustains the universe by his powerful word, can his purpose to inherit the world he made ever fail? No. Even his greatest enemies cannot exist without him sustaining their being. His powerful word will ensure that all things get where he wants them to go in the new heavens and the new earth. But something else he does before then is to save a people to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. Which leads us to number five. The Son made purification for our sins. The Son made purification for our sins. This second half of verse three, it just says, after making purification for sins. So Hebrews uh, will develop this further in relation to the priestly sacrifices uh, in the Old Testament. This is kind of his intro to the subject here. Humanity has a problem. We reject our Maker. We defy His Word. Uh, We don't acknowledge Him. And And in response to that evil, God must judge us. Our, our sin deserves death and separation from God and eternal punishment. And the, the only solution is the right substitute. And so the Old Testament starts preparing us for this, right? When the people were unclean, like us. They had broken God's law, like us. They were guilty, like us. And in order for their sins, uh, in order for, for their sins to be removed so that they could enter God's presence again, Something perfect had to die in the place of the sinner. And so the priest would offer a bull or a goat in place of the people. 
What was lacking in these sacrifices, though, is that the blood of bulls and goats could never actually take away sins. What was their significance then? Well, they were but shadows of the good things to come, Hebrews tells us. They pointed to a day when God would take away sins through a superior sacrifice. The Son became that superior sacrifice. The Son took to Himself a human nature, obeyed everywhere we failed, and then He suffered and died under the wrath of God for all His people. He died to purify His people from their sins. And notice how it says, after making purification. After. It's a done deal, in other words. Nothing more needs to happen in order to purify God's people. It's done. And how do we know that? This son sat down. He sat down at God's right hand. That's how we know. That's how we know his work is finished. Verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The son didn't stay dead. God raised him up even more. He seated him as a man at the highest place of honor. Now, God doesn't literally have a right hand, God is invisible. But earthly kings did. You can see some of this play out in, in the Old Testament. And to sit at the king's right hand was to sit in the place of honor. Applied to the Lord, though, it's the place of absolute honor, an absolute rule, an absolute authority, an absolute dominion. Look at verse 13 in Hebrews where he quotes Psalm 110. And he'll develop this much further as, as the letter goes along. But he quotes from Psalm 110 which says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we see here that it's a place of absolute dominion from which Christ rules the world. He will put all his enemies underneath his, his feet. Important, though, is that the son sat down. In fact, it's, it's one of the main... Uh, if you wanted to kind of give a synopsis of what this, what this little paragraph says, it's the, the basic clause is, God has spoken by a son who sat down. That's the main point. Everything else is just details about who this son is. But he sat down. That's... That's the main point, and there's a, there's a sense of finality to it. And I say that because in chapter 10, verse 12, Hebrews will contrast Jesus sitting with the priests standing. They have to keep standing to offer the sacrifices, right? But Jesus sat down. Why? Because another sacrifice doesn't need to be made. He's the better priest. His death was sufficient, complete. Nothing more needed to be added to it. All our sins are taken away, so he sits down. And then lastly, verse 7, I mean, uh, number 7. The Son became as much superior to angels. 
Verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, the Son was already more excellent than the angels. He pre-existed the angels and he created the angels. So in what sense does he become? Become as much superior. It implies the humility of his incarnation in which the Son was born in the likeness of men. And like us, He was made for a little while lower than the angels. Isn't that awesome? This Son that we've just been talking about created the universe. He becomes like us, made a little lower than the angels. And then once He finished His Father's work on earth to save us, now the Father exalts Him, now as a man the God-man above the angels and gave Him a name more excellent than theirs. That name could be Son. He goes on to explain in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son? At the same time, the other Old Testament quotes, especially verses 7-9 through here, imply that Jesus bears the name Yahweh. Lord. Either way, the name is, is... is far more excellent than the angels. Now, in comparison to the other six qualifications, you might be asking, like, what's the big deal with angels? Like, after you said all the rest of that, who cares? What's this this thing with angels going? Where did that come from? Well, eventually, he's going to explain that in chapter 2, verse 2 where we see that God declared His message in the Old Testament by angels. He gave the law. This is something common. Galatians mentions it. Acts mentions it. Where God delivered the law, the Old Covenant, through angels, angelic intermediators. And what He says there is that that word given through the angels, it proved reliable. His point here is that if that word proved reliable, how much more reliable is the Son who made them and rules them? And the question for us is, are you listening to Him? Are you listening to Him? God has spoken to us by His Son. This Son, heir of all things, creator, sustainer, the radiance of God's glory, enthroned above all, the One who humbled Himself to purify our sins and then sat down at God's right hand. Are we listening to God's Word in Him? He is there, and He is not silent. A lot of other voices compete for our attention. Which ones drive you the most every day? Which voices determine your steps and what you're going to give yourself to? 
whose words govern in your pursuits and inspire your passions. According to verses 1 to 4, only one is worthy of all our attention and adoration. Jesus Christ, the Son. He is God's final decisive revelation. How do you listen to His Word? You listen by opening this book and reading His words. And the writer of Hebrews teaches you how. If I had the opportunity to have one book on an island that taught me what in the world's going on in the Old Testament and how it bears witness to Jesus, Hebrews would be the book. Let Hebrews teach you how to read the whole of Scripture and how the whole of Scripture bears witness to Jesus the Son. So open it and read, beloved. Meditate on these words. Memorize them. Turn them around in your head and preach them to yourself until they become so much a part of you that you start to think God's thoughts after Him. Also, never move beyond God's final word in the Son. Never move beyond God's final word in the Son. Whether it's a teacher or a prophet, or a spokesman, what all false religions hold in common is either dismissing God's revelation in the Son or trying to add to God's revelation in the Son. Test it for yourselves. Judaism acknowledges the Old Testament to be God's Word, but they ignore the climax of that revelation in Jesus. They reject the Messiah. They reject the fact that God sent the Son to deliver them. Roman Catholicism, at various points in history, have added to God's revelation in the Son, giving the Pope authority to speak ex cathedra and, and, and so on. Islam will say that God did reveal His will to Jesus. That Jesus was a prophet even. But then they add that Muhammad was God's final messenger. He was the prophet superior to Jesus. Mormonism does likewise, claiming Joseph Smith as their prophet, adding to God's decisive word, the Book of Mormon. Yes, they claim it's another testament of Jesus Christ, but the contents clearly contradict the Christ known to the apostles. But hitting closer to home, we too will move into dangerous territory when we ignore God's Word and His Son. When we fail to acknowledge His moment-by-moment sustaining of our lives, we will fall into error. When we assign false guilt to our brothers and sisters, when Jesus has purified all of our sins, we will fall into error. When we live as if He's not enthroned above all things, we will fall into error. 
We too move into dangerous territory when we move beyond God's revelation in the Son and start elevating our traditions and our personal preferences and our cultures to a place of authority that belongs solely to Jesus. And so we must guard ourselves from this by returning to Jesus in the apostles' teaching. We have to keep Jesus at the center of our teaching and our fellowship. We don't ever want to move beyond the gospel. As William Guthrie once put it, when the believer looks in faith to Jesus Christ, she or he says, less would not satisfy, but nothing more could be desired. Less would not satisfy, but nothing more could be desired. That's how faith looks at Jesus. Also, remember the gospel order. God comes down to save man. Right? Be amazed that this God took on humanity. Our God is unlike the God of Islam, who can't be closely involved with creation. He's unlike the God of Docetism, who, can't, uh, who, who can only disguise himself as human. He's unlike the God of deism who who doesn't make himself known to us. He's unlike the God of other religions who require man to work his way up the ladder to God. But here we're seeing in the Son that God condescends. He speaks. He sustains. He comes down. He makes himself known. He enters the world he made. He is high, but he also draws near. And he identifies with our humanity. He even becomes one of us, a little lower than the angels, to save us from our desperate predicament. That's the gospel order we see here. Not man works his way to God, or man becomes a God, but God comes down to save man. And when God the Son comes down in the person of Jesus, we can know God, truly. If you want someone who tells the whole story about God, we don't look to a Muhammad or we don't look to a Joseph Smith or an angel from heaven or even your favorite preacher, we look to Jesus. Knowing God isn't a mystery. He's not hiding from you. He communicates glory to us. He gives the written Word. He sends the living Word. If you're searching for God this morning... Just drop by to see what's going on in Christianity. Don't look further than Jesus Christ to know God. To know Jesus the Son is to know God. Truly. And then lastly, in order to persevere, meditate on and celebrate the Son's person and work and status. Meditate on the Son and celebrate the Son's person, work, and status. Again, Hebrews was written to help wavering and weary saints persevere. And the way Hebrews does this is is by helping Christians see Jesus as He really is in all His greatness. You will hear repeated exhortations in this letter. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Don't let go. Don't neglect. It's only by looking to Jesus 
that we will make it to the end, beloved. Some of you feel guilty for your sins that you committed this week. And the Holy Spirit has convicted you. You are, you are broken by, uh, by... You've been broken by God's Word. Rightly, you're ashamed of your sin. But that doesn't mean your fight is over. That doesn't mean you're out of the race. Consider Jesus who made purification for your sins. You know what else He did? He sat down at God's right hand. Which means you don't have to do anything else to have your sins cleansed. Christ did it all for you. Trust in Him and His work. He has you covered. Some of you have been treating Christ's words lightly. You hear them week in and week out from this pulpit or in Sunday school or maybe in your care group. Maybe you read consistent quiet times. But those words don't impact you all that much throughout your day. You're like the man James says, looks at his face in the mirror but then leaves forgetting what he's like. You're a hearer but not a doer. And for you, the writer of Hebrews would say, consider Jesus, brother. Consider Jesus, sister. Look at His authority here. Consider His kingship. Consider His worth as God the Son. And then let that motivate you to obey Him and spend your life for Him. Some of you have grown weary of the world's chaos and the political turmoil and the constant slander all over the media and the inconsistent logic of leaders. So frustrating. And disputes, even within the church at large, leave you disheartened. Maybe things at home aren't working out as you planned. Maybe you're praying for even good things and those good things don't come. Consider the word that God has spoken in His Son to you. Right? To us. He sustains all things by the word of His power. He's the appointed heir of all things. He's on the throne. Nothing's going to keep His plans from happening. And that's good news for those who belong to Him. The King has gone before us. And, pre- and His present status means that our future is secure. A new heaven and a new earth will come. But consider this too. If the Son is the heir of all things, guess what you inherit when you're united to Him? All things. For real. You don't believe me? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter... 3. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Or in Romans chapter 8. Where the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. (laughs) Isn't that good news? You got everything because you have Christ. 
through His purifying death, we've become heirs together with Christ. And as you eat this bread and drink this cup this morning, consider Jesus the Son. In these last days, God has spoken to us by Him. Trey, lead us. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.